you know, if you look at Switzerland, we, we're privileged to be in this really functional first world country. It comes with its challenges, we know that living here. Uh, but the apprenticeship system, for example, is one that is the world standard. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Swiss system is not a new system. The reason why it works so well is because it's 600 years old. There's, it's built into the cultural fabric of Swiss society. Uh, employers understand they have a role to play to take young people in. Schools understand that they have an important role to give people opportunity and options from as young as 10, 11, 12. They do the career guidance. They bring employers in, local employers, to talk about the work that they do. And, you know, these children have a chance to decide quite early on what appeals to them. Yeah. Um, many other countries don't have, aren't lucky enough to have that kind of sophisticated system where employers and the training providers or the training system work so closely together. So, you know, that's something that we're trying to create awareness around, doing advocacy for. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Thank you for joining me. This is Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. Our third season continues. This time, my guest is Nasreen Mani, Executive Director of Global Apprenticeship Network, Global, GAN. Nasreen is a South African national and a specialist in social policy, focusing on youth employment and skill development. In her work, she collaborates closely with organizations such as the Global Alliance for Youth, private sector companies, and international development entities such as ILO, World Bank, UNESCO, and the OECD to drive forward the agenda for agile workforce development within the context of the future of work. Although many of these topics have been on many organizations' agendas for years, the COVID-19 pandemic brought them front and center to the collective consciousness, fostering dialogue and a stock-taking of where we stand and where we are heading. All this in the minds of many individuals and their professional careers, as well as their work-life balance, but also from a larger social and, cost and cultural perspective. We touched upon many of these topics during our conversation, including automation, remote working, skill shortages, the future of universities, and many others. We could have talked for quite a bit longer, since these topics are of great relevance. And also Nasreen discusses them so clearly and interestingly that the conversation flew by. It was a great conversation, and I look forward to you listening to it. Please enjoy our conversation, and I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. It really helps. Spreading the word with your friends or even your enemies also helps. The more, the merrier. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Hello, Nasreen. Uh, nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Ronaldo. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, I, I mean, I want to talk a bit more about the organization, GAN. But before that, like, I'm really interested to hear a bit about, about you. Like, you're originally from South Africa. Correct. How was it growing up in South Africa? So, 
South Africa is an interesting place. It, it always has been. It's been on the global map for some of the wrong reasons, especially mm-hmm. apartheid. Uh, so when I grew up, I'm I'm a Gen X. So you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, apartheid was still uh, you know very prominent. It, it affected our lives growing up. Um, we had things like Group Areas Act, which defined where you lived. Yeah. Um, so in racially segregated suburbs, uh, racially segregated uh, schooling systems. Um, and then as we got to the 90s and we started moving into the democratic environment and the post-apartheid um, landscape, uh, it really became an interesting space, um, especially as I started going to high school. Um, it coincided with the time when schools opened up to all races. So. Um, I started high school in, in a school that was a girls' school, so that was also interesting coming yeah. from a co-ed primary school. Uh, but what was most fascinating was on our first day in the school, uh, there was a group of us who were non-white, that's the classification that was used, uh, and there were 30 of us in a school with 600 white girls, <laughs> uh, which was quite quite something. Uh, but, but I must say, looking back on the experience, uh, I, I was... I was so impressed with the teachers. Uh, you know, we were we were able to assimilate into the school. Uh, I can't recall any kind of overt racism from the teachers, from colleagues in in classmates. Uh, what was very different was the quality of education. So the standard of the school, which was a public school yeah. funded by taxpayers, would compete with any of the private schools in Geneva oh. in terms of facilities. Uh, swimming pools, hockey fields, uh, sports stadium, uh, pavilion seating, uh, basketball courts, netball courts, um, the kind of drama club where you could put on plays, you had a stage in the school hall. Uh, so first class facilities and excellent teachers. And this is like the, the public system? This was the public system. Whoa. So, you know, from where we came from, a very simple school, good teachers, um, you know, I, I mustn't discount the kind of teachers that we had. But in terms of extramural activities, we didn't have that much. Uh, there was minimal investment by the apartheid government at the time um, in building up schools for um, Indian students. So I'm, I'm of Indian heritage and we classified as Indian in South Africa. Um, and then you have black African. Um, and then we have a terminology where you know, elsewhere in the world it would be a derogatory term, but we have a class of our citizens who are classified as coloreds. <laughs> So individuals of mixed race are legally known as coloured. Um, and, you know, when I speak to colleagues in Geneva and you use the term, I think people immediately take offence. And then I explain to them that actually in my country, that's a legal term. If you had to call uh, the citizen something else, they'd probably take offence to it. Yeah. So, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting space. I think it was a very exciting time to be able to see your country take steps to democracy. Um, I I was 16 in 1994 when the first elections were held, so too young to vote. But, you know, there was this amazing sense of anticipation and hope for what South Africa could be. But you you mentioned something that some of these were realizations that you came like afterwards, like looking back, how was it like at that time? Like, how did you experience these things? Were you aware of them or? was something that was discussed at home and school? So, so I've always been uh, very politically aware. Um, you know, my, my dad in particular was someone who tried to educate us on what was right and wrong and, you know, socially, morally, what do we stand for? Um, 
we were not allowed to vote up until 1994, so my parents had never voted. Uh, but, you know, I think there was this real passion for social justice. Um, you know, in my family, many people were, were teachers or lawyers. Um, I have a cousin at the moment who's in the running for a seat of the South African Constitutional Court. So she was always a passionate advocate for human rights. So, so I think I was privileged and, and that also influenced what I wanted to do. So for a long time, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> and, then, and then at some stage, I decided I wanted to be a diplomat. And, and I suppose in many ways in my you current kind of, role... I've, you mixed I've, both. I've mixed both. <laughs> because I, I work in the social policy, but, I, but I'm also in that uh, role where I interface with international partners and you know, high-level delegates, uh, embassies, consular individuals. So it's, it's an exciting and interesting role that, that I have combining the, the best, I hope, of both worlds. <laughs> and this uh, premium on education is also something that like you, you're working in that space yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as, as an Indian South African, um, we, we came to South Africa, um, so in 1864, in the first lot of Indian um, um, laborers actually came to South Africa from India. They were brought to work on sugarcane farms. Um, and not just to South Africa, they were taken to British colonies where sugarcane was farmed around the world. So that's why you have a large Indian population in the Caribbean, for example. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, our my forefathers came with this work ethic, this culture of really working hard and using that to uplift yourself. But throughout any uh, of these times, education was the premium. E everyone was told that you need a good education to lift yourself out of that role of indentured labourer and, you know, for the social mobility. Uh, and, and it's something that my family value, that in my community has always been valued. And I think I, I have taken that ethos into my, my work, as you say. I've, I've been involved um, in the space championing vocational education um, for at least... 16 years now, which gives away my age a little bit. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I can really see the value. Uh, the other thing that I've seen is that there are different pathways to a meaningful education. Um, and I think that's where an organization like the Global Apprenticeship Network plays such an important role. Uh, university is not the only legitimate way. But, uh, yeah, actually, I want to talk a bit about that because, like, also in my culture and my parents, they always put a premium on education, but it was mainly viewed as university. Yeah. Like you go to university, and I guess that in the in the olden days, you go to university and then you get a job and then you move out. But if you go to university, you pretty much had a guaranteed yeah. that you were going to have like a good, stable life. That's not, would, that's not the case anymore. No, it's not. And, and the thing is, we were taught that you know, to be respectable in society, you need a university degree. Yeah, that gives yeah. you uh, its currency. And there's, and there's even like a rank, like first doctor, then yeah. second lawyer. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I recall a colleague of mine said that her brother in the 80s told his parents he wanted to be an engineer. And they said, why would you want to do that? You're so clever, you could be a doctor. <laughs> exactly. But he was really good with his hands and he wanted to do that. So, you know, it, it's just interesting. What we're finding as the GAN is that these attitudes towards education permeate all countries, developed and developing, uh, and probably more so in developing countries where this focus on university as the premium um, is something that we have to work with to change attitudes. Because we can see, you know, if you look at Switzerland, we, we're privileged to be in this 
really functional first world country. It comes with its challenges, we know that living here. Uh, but the apprenticeship system, for example, is one that is the world standard. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Swiss system is not a new system. The reason why it works so well is because it's 600 years old. There's, it's built into the cultural fabric of Swiss society. Uh, employers understand they have a role to play to take young people in. Schools understand that they have an important role to give people opportunity and options from as young as 10, 11, 12. They do the career guidance, they bring employers in, local employers to talk about the work that they do. And you know these children have a chance to decide quite early on what appeals to them. Yeah. Um, many other countries don't have, aren't lucky enough to have that kind of sophisticated system where employers and the training providers or the training system work so closely together. So you know that's something that we're trying to create awareness around, doing advocacy for. But I I wonder because like like I said I was raised here. I'm originally from Mexico. When I was raised in Mexico, it was like that. And myself, like it created some preconceptions. So when I first came to Switzerland and I learned about the apprenticeship, I viewed them like, well, that's not like a, a real degree. And something that maybe I, even now, like when my daughters are going to school, I'm like, no, but you're going to go to university. <laughs> and it's just a culture around it. it. Like, uh, and to change that culture, it's not easy and it takes time. It takes time, it takes educating the community. So it's educating parents, it's educating community leaders, it's working with teachers. We, we did something really interesting in Argentina last year where we actually trained teachers on work-based learning and what vocational education can offer because who do students look to for guidance as well? Yeah. They look to teachers. So unless teachers know what opportunities are out there beyond the traditional route, you're not going to be able to give learners the choice. So a, a lot of work is being done around teacher awareness creation, around career guidance, trying to get employers and the private sector to actively engage with the communities that they work in to show the value of the apprenticeship route or an internship. And you know, there, there are numerous studies that speak to the benefit of an apprenticeship, for example. Um, you immediately are looking at issues around lower costs of staff uh, development. Uh, attraction and retention of staff is much higher. Productivity levels are higher. Staff loyalty are increased. Uh, for the learner, you, you have a pathway that gives you both a, a hands-on uh, opportunity for learning coupled with theory. You are able to quickly apply what you learn. Um, a big issue that, that's coming through is most apprenticeship programs are free to learners. In fact, you paid while you're studying. Whereas a traditional university route at the moment can potentially uh, incur hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that will take a lifetime to pay. Yeah, I'm paying for mine. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, you're generating an income from the day you start an apprenticeship. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite amazing what an apprenticeship can do. But there's so much work that we have to do to educate society about the value. Yet apprentices are with us every day and they're also like historically like that's the way it has been done yes. historically. Like, historically at what point in time did it change that there was like a premium placed on universities instead of like this route i think as universities became mainstreamed and access to all levels of the population open, opened up uh, you know then that became the pathway that you you needed to follow uh, but it's clear that 
you know, there's a lot of work that we need to do to get young people into the labor market. Uh, and not just young people. What we're seeing also at the moment is with the shifts in the world of work and, and your background is trade, you know the impact that trade is having on the labor market in terms of shortage of skills, um, the need for new and emerging skills. Um, it's very clear now that you know people are even midway through their careers either changing careers and I think COVID has prompted a lot of people to rethink yeah, actually, what I gives think, them passion. <laughs> I think that this, like a lot of the topics that you're talking about, like were exacerbated by COVID because a lot of these were perhaps in the surface, but we never really thought about Absolutely. them. And it's only now when people are rethinking it, like, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Yeah. And some people are quitting their jobs and then just uh, well, there's some, looking different for different options. There's something called the great resignation happening. And much of it is around people looking at their career and asking, does it give me purpose in life? Is it linked to what I'm passionate about? Um, is this what I want to do, a two-hour commute each way, um, not spending time on myself, on my family? Um, I think the, the whole conversation around mental health yeah, is also breaking down many of these barriers to have these conversations. So what that is prompting now is this need for each of us to relook at our skill set and identify where do we need to upskill, where do we need to reskill, and where do we need new skills? Uh, so it's fascinating to see in the UK and the US, uh, the average age of an apprentice is now between 26 and 32. So it's not just for youth. Um, it, it's a program, it's, it's a strategy for learning that can be applied to any work, anyone in the workforce, whether you're a new entrant or an experienced worker uh, or individual. But what it's giving us is the chance to build new skills. And, and I think the other thing that COVID caused was you know the shutting down of many sectors like the tourism sector for example or the transport sector where you know uh, highways and roads were emptied of traffic and suddenly people had to rethink well okay how do I generate an income if I'm on on furlough like they did in the UK and the US and people then found different ways to do it so some were upskilled into sectors where they could use existing skills and learn new skills. So many uh, people in the hospitality and tourism sector found that their customer service skills could be applied as frontline uh, customer facing uh, individuals in the medical field, for example. Or you found that uh, people were suddenly, there was a demand for health and safety. Uh, so could you take that skills that you may have in a particular field in, in whichever sector was on a downturn and, and apply it to a sector in demand. Um, I look at the UK at the moment and we can see the whole issue with truck drivers, <laughs> the shortage mm. of truck drivers. And yesterday I saw they have a shortage of butchers and abattoir workers. Now butcher is an old trade. It's an old apprentice trade. Um, we just haven't been training enough butchers and suddenly we're seeing it manifest in a country that's central to the supply chain. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's really, really interesting how so many of these issues are now coming to the surface and are being spoken about quite publicly. But what about um, this, for example, that you're talking about transferable skills? Um, because I see it all the time when uh, in traditional recruitment, when a company is recruiting for new employees, sometimes they don't understand the value of these transferable skills. And they are they're looking for someone who's been doing the same job for the, their biggest competitor to just like to replicate. Yeah, to replicate it. That's it. And 
actually this disappoints me and even upsets me because there's a lot of people who have skills that could be transferred and be useful and perhaps even the the other skills that they don't have will be useful for the organization but the old way of the system that recruitment works does not account for this. Absolutely. And um, GAN worked with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development earlier this year to develop a guide on skilling for the future of work, particularly targeted at HR executives for this very reason, because HR as a business unit needs to fundamentally rethink how it operates. Um, and, and we've been pushing our partners to say, and our members, private sector members, and our policy development partners to say, you know, each of you need to see how HR becomes more strategic, more dynamic, and not just compliance driven or tick box driven. Because we, we, we've heard from so many companies, and also on the flip side, so many individuals applying for jobs that, you know, they apply on these automated systems, online systems, And they use algorith algorithms which simply screen for words. And if none of those words are there, it pushes the CV out. The problem is you are dispensing with so much talent that could yeah. actually have, have more relevance to you. And I think that's the other thing. Don't you want to bring different kind of thinking into your organization? Don't you want a different perspective uh, from the traditional cookie cutter um, type of employee that you think you've needed? So I... COVID again is, is causing many, many rethinks, including in HR, around recruitment, around selection, um, the, the whole issue of building skills. Um, so in this guide, and, and I'll be happy to share a copy with you, uh, we talk about, well, what are the strategies for uh, attracting skills? And there are three core strategies, and that's buy, borrow, build. <laughs> so you either recruit to replace, and you end up Um, you know, creating sal salary anomalies in the market because, you know, if people are, have a skill in uh, high demand, you're going to be paying a premium for them. Uh, borrow is, you know, when, when organizations share the talent. Um, so, you know, that person's moving around. Or we're saying the last one is actually the most sustainable, and that's building your talent pipeline, investing in training um, and equipping people with these skills that are transferable, But also you're creating this agility in the labor market uh, because it means that people can move, they can change sectors, they can enhance their own skill set, um, but you're encouraging them as an employer. You're not trying to hog the skill for yourself. But this is something that, like, I mean, I've been aware for a long time and I've, I'm not the only one, but I still see companies very slow in adapt this new thinking. Yeah. Even if they see... Even if they read an article or they go to a to a conference or something, they maybe take notes and that. But maybe they want to implement it, but then anyone higher up in the yeah. management they decide like, no, 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 we're still gonna use our traditional yeah. HR models. Yeah. It, how, how do you accelerate the implementation of those? So, so as GAN, what we do is we use our members, use our private sector members to. Uh, do the advocacy on our behalf to uh, do peer-to-peer -peer learning because we've realized that many of our members have similar pain points even if they're in different sectors some are in banking insurance uh, services employment services uh, but the the talent challenge cuts across uh, the industry um, fluctuations are, are hitting each of them uh, so how can they learn and share and i find it fascinating that 
the members are becoming so open and honest. You know, a few years ago, companies wouldn't tell you uh, that they couldn't find the right talent because that's, um, you know, a vulnerability that they wouldn't want to show a competitor, for example. Uh, but I think now it's clear. The problem is much bigger than one company. It needs um, a collaborative approach to a solution. It, it needs this leadership um, from the top, as you say, you know, can we get the CEOs to come together to raise the issues, to influence change in the individual organizations? And that has a ripple effect throughout their value chains. Um, so we need a movement around it. I think that that's the best way I can put it. But it needs the action. It needs leaders to be vocal. Um, I think we're seeing so much research coming out now, so you can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's evidence for to, to uh, back up the research there's enough of an argument to address the, the challenge. And what about the traditional education in universities? I think that I, well, I do have like a, a soft spot for universities because that's how I was raised. But uh, I've been constantly hearing people complaining about like, why do we need to pay, for example, full tuition if we're taking uh, classes from, from Online, home? Yeah. And they're not the same, they do not replicate the same things. Like, how do you see the traditional education model, embracing some of these new challenges that were become more evident due to the pandemic? So, I, I think we must be honest. We're not going to see the end of universities anytime soon. Um, I was on a panel discussion a few years ago with one of the very large um, online uh, course delivery companies, um, and the gentleman said, oh, well, you know, universities are going to disappear soon. I, I don't think we must be that naive. I think as a culture of education, as a pathway of education, universities are intrinsically uh, ingrained um, and have status and there is demand in society. On the other hand, I think we also have to come to the realization that there are changes that need to happen at universities as well. Um, as with vocational education, universities need to be far more aligned to what is happening in the labor market. Um, there needs to be a deeper appreciation of trends, of fluctuations. Um, I think we, we are also seeing there's this whole need, for example, for soft skills. And I don't really like the term soft skills because for me, they're actually foundational essential skills. Yeah, problem it solving. The, the merits a bit, uh, the value of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because for me, they're, they're more core than the technical skills. And you know, if I think back in, in all of my years of working in this space, Employers have always said, if you bring someone with the right attitude, we can teach the technical skills. Yeah, it's true. But if the person's not interested, if you know they, they don't want to learn, I, I can't do anything with that, no matter how good they are in maths or science or um, any of the other um, curriculum requirements. So th those core skills, those essential skills, transversal skills, there's so many other words we can use. Um, I think those are fundamental to curriculum design. And they actually need to come into our education system from earlier on. Yeah, actually, those those so-called soft skills, they're learned at an earlier age, no? Yeah. When you're even like in kindergarten. Absolutely. Or I don't know. Problem solving. Yeah. You know, when we're teaching, think about when we're teaching babies to put the shapes um, in, in the little toys. Yeah. Right? That, that's problem solving. That We want them to learn and figure out and, you know, understand dimensions and size, etc. Uh, creative thinking, teamwork, you know, there, there's so many, there's a long list. The World Economic Forum has a long, long list of these skills, these essential skills. We need to in integrate them into curricula. Uh, we need to make sure that at, at a university level, 
absolutely the the way of teaching delivery has fundamentally changed um, I, I think we will see many more institutions look at hybrid programs Th there's also this competitive angle that university is going to have to deal with so you know if you're you're dealing with organizations like Coursera and uh, the, the like who can deliver programs online uh, you have to rethink your funding model and yeah. your costing model because how do you justify you know charging fifty thousand dollars when someone can do a part of a program and you know pay a nominal fee at the same time you want the best lecturers yeah. uh, you want the best administration you you want to offer innovation research that all costs money so yes you do have to pay um, but where's the balance i think also importantly um, you know what is the whole issue around access to digital skills so i've been privileged to be involved in the g20 work but primarily on the business side to so the b20 and there's been a huge focus on uh, the integration of digital skilling into the mainstream um, education and labor skills development system uh, the biggest challenge is access to hardware software and infrastructure because it's not equitable at the moment <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, the, the digital divide is real. In fact, it's growing through COVID. What has surprised me most out of that is that it doesn't matter if you're a developing or developed country. We've been doing studies in Australia, New Zealand, Colombia. Uh, we, we know our networks, for example, in Malawi, have a, you know, the country has a minimal penetration, electricity penetration rate. I think on average, 20% of Malawi is electrified. <laughs> So how do you tell Malawians to learn, just download the course, right? But we've, we've heard from our partners in Australia and New Zealand that there's a very distinct divide in terms of access to digital learning. And that's along gender lines, it's along um, the marginalization of indigenous people who don't have access to reliable internet. Um, in South Africa, electricity is a problem, but the high cost of data is the bigger problem. Um, so how do you tell a family who need to decide, well, we need food on the table or do the children need to do online schooling? What is the choice? <laughs> uh, so until, until we start addressing those gaps, uh, digital is not going to take over the world. <laughs> but I think to your point about the cost issue, there are some universities that are looking at different uh, cost models. Um, I don't think it's going to satisfy most people just yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're just at the beginning. And regarding like something that perhaps is not talked about, but a lot of the value of going to one of these universities is the network around those. Uh, how do you replicate that like in other, in other education models? So the value of the network can't be underestimated. And, and you and I working in this space in Geneva, I think, uh, particularly appreciate the value of the network. Uh, but I think we shouldn't underestimate that you cannot build a network outside of a university um, because we've seen that our learners who go into the workplace build that network in the workplace. Yeah. They, they work with colleagues, they build relationships with colleagues. Uh, word of mouth's a powerful thing. So, you know, if somebody talks about so-and-so at a barbecue, uh, you know, you start building connections, you, you socialize and you build your network. So you don't have to be limited to university. I think what is also interesting is we, we did some studies in South Africa and other colleagues in, in other countries. Um, if you are 
If you have the opportunity to work during your studies, whether vocational or university, and so say, so say you're doing an electri electrical apprenticeship, and you're able to work in a manufacturing company at or the same time. At the same time, so in in the holidays, you could go mm. in, uh, you know one week a month and then increase it to two weeks or three weeks as you you progress in your program you have an 80 percent higher chance of being of finding employment in your field of study that's down to your knowledge experience and your network i would think um, the, you know the the other issue that we've seen is how a network can prevent you from accessing uh, the labor market uh, so there's an organization that operates in Africa called Harambi, and Harambi creates connections for youth employment. So they started in South Africa, and what they did was they started looking at uh, school leavers, but those who passed, but passed really badly, you know, just scraped a pass. Yeah. Um, and then they started looking at, okay, how can they connect you to possible employees? It's entry-level work. So, you know, you, you could go into a fast food chain and work as a cashier or on the grill. Um, some started uh, working in insurance agencies, being trained in the call center. And, and you know, it, it's progressed from there. But they particularly targeted those learners who didn't go to school in the suburbs because they felt that by going to school in the suburbs, you had a far more mature school network. Mm. They also looked at individuals whose parents didn't work. Because if your parents work, your parents have a network that you could access. And, you know, in, in South Africa, as I'm sure in parts of Mexico, and we know in, in many parts of Africa and Latin, particularly in Asia, there's this issue of generational unemployment. So, you know, for two or three generations, people haven't been working in families. So there is no network. So they had to start teaching them a number of basic skills once the learners were selected onto the program. Skills like how do you budget? <laughs> how, do you, how do you manage time? <laughs> um, you know, how do you work in a team? Uh, a whole lot of issues. So actually teaching the skills to start creating uh, and actively participating in a network. So I think the, the power of a network can't be understated, but I think we don't have to underestimate how networks can be created. And uh, recently in trade, there has been a lot of talk about how trade is like the, the reason why we have so many problems, but there have been studies that show that actually not many jobs, well, many, some jobs are being lost because of trade, but another reason and perhaps bigger is automation. Mm. Um, a lot of the tasks, and not only the repetitive, like those tasks, but sometimes even complex tasks are being taken over by by machines or software or whatever. How are we adapting? How are we preparing ourselves towards that uh, next? Which is might not be next. We're it's living here. in yeah. It's yeah. yeah. Look, I think we can't underestimate the impact of technology on the labor market and on the nature of work. Uh, the gig economy is a good example of that, where you know work is suddenly now compressed into a job at a time. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's also very clear that automation is going to affect different bands of workers differently. So we know at the lowest level, those simplified tasks can be easily automated. So the, the challenge to us as employers and those of us who operate in the space of uplifting people 
is making sure that we can upscale those individuals so that they are um, able to perform more complex tasks that maybe will mean avoiding automation. Uh, it, it's a challenge, it's not that easy. It also means looking potentially at other sectors where they could work in. Um, so what could we teach them if, if they're in you know, agriculture, for example. Um, agriculture is, an, is, is a good example of where, you know, at the moment in most countries, it's labor intensive. But in, in many of our industrialized first world countries, you have a man and a machine yeah. performing the work of 10 laborers. It doesn't mean those people don't have knowledge and skills and experience. So what, what else could we look at in the agriculture supply chain where we could skill them? Uh, how else could you bring in sustainable techniques to, to demonstrate uh, their knowledge and experience and abilities? Uh, something we're, we're looking at doing, uh, rolling out a project next year, is around aquaculture. Um, and aquaculture is technology-enhanced agriculture. Um, so yes, there will be the technology, but you still need people and, and you know you can bring in the sustainability angle, you can bring in the farm to table aspect, you can bring in the farm to retail angle. So how could we look at different mechanisms to skill up individuals? Um, the other issue is that, that level of skill that is more complex but being automated. So we have members, for example, in the insurance sector, and they've said to us that their studies are showing that you know in just a matter of years, uh, the insurance claim function, for example, could be fully automated. I think some companies are already doing it. They're moving fully. towards yeah. that, yeah. So what, what they're doing is they've already identified the cohorts of staff who are going to be affected. They've given them aptitude tests, they've checked their interest, and they're now putting them on different programs. So you know, it could be coding, it could be you know, other systems work, um, but it's really saying to these individuals, we're not just going to switch to a machine and leave you in the cold. They've also said, we know that we can't retain all of those individuals. So it's incumbent on us to train them to a level of skill where the market can um, absorb them. So I think it, it, it's a responsibility on organizations to, to understand which areas of the, the business operations will be affected. So they need to provide opportunities for staff to be upskilled, reskilled, um, acquire new skills. It's also a responsibility on the individual because learning cannot be forced on us. Yeah, actually, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, who's who's responsible to determine what what skills are good? Is it the society? Is it employers? Is it the individual? It's and how do you determine that? Yeah, it's so, so I think it's it's all of us having to work together. I think there's a lot of work being done to identify uh, new and emerging uh, areas of work, new and emerging skills in demand. Um, I think. As individuals, we need to see, you know, are we interested in that particular skill set? Uh, do we want to further ourselves? I think we're at a point in our lives now where lifelong learning is something that we have to ad adapt and adopt uh, because our skill sets are becoming, becoming obsolete rather quickly um, and we have to constantly learn and develop ourselves. I think just for our own personal satisfaction, and then organizations need to create these enabling environments internally. Uh, and not all organizations can do that. I, I, I'm mindful of the fact that small and medium businesses will likely not be able to provide that kind of support to employees. But that's where the public system becomes so important. So you know, are our national skills systems, our national education systems equipped 
to ensure that the population, our citizens, um, have the opportunity to continually learn and develop themselves. Um, we're seeing, you know, France, for example, um, is being very proactive in that. One of the first countries uh, to uh, set aside funding for individual learning accounts. Uh, so each citizen receives a sum of money that they have a number of years to spend to do a course or however many courses that uh, amount can fund. Uh, Singapore is doing something similar. Uh, again, it's countries who can afford that. <laughs> so the social security aspect becomes another debate. Yeah. But it is important that people have access to learning. Um, and we, we know that there are a number of platforms that people can use. Um, but again, you need the access to the internet, you need an affordable internet, you need to have devices such as a smartphone or a laptop or a desktop computer. Um, how do we make sure that people have access to it? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a whole of society effort. <laughs> and like now that I'm like growing up and in the professional environment, I've realized that before when I was younger, I didn't really place a lot of value on experience. And now that I, I've actually seen it like firsthand, I've, I've understood the value of experience, which I completely neglected. How, like how are uh, the workers, employees, or whoever who is like a bit more experienced, how can they transfer that experience? Because that is something that, I don't know if you can teach, Well, maybe you well, can. You know, I think it's about sharing more than teaching. And I think this is where mentorship becomes so important. And we're seeing in so many conversations this idea of mentorship and coaching uh, becoming mainstream. Uh, so how do you create mentorship circles? Uh, it's different from a trainer. Uh, and I think, you know, what is important is we, we mustn't assume that because someone's done a job for 20 years or 10 years makes them able to impart or share knowledge. Um, it's a particular skill to be a trainer. But I think as a coach, you know, sharing your life experience, sharing your work experience, um, it just gives someone an opportunity to have a connection. Um, what's interesting is a few weeks ago I facilitated, well, not facilitated, I was, I was a respondent in a panel of, of young people. And I feel very old when I say that. But, you know, they were all in their early 20s. Uh, some had just graduated university. Most had just started working. And they, they were asked how, how did they feel about working in multi-generational environments now. Um, and very inter interestingly, they said they would like to encourage more of their older peers to ask them questions. So this idea of reverse mentoring, because they have life experiences that are, are quite different. You know, many of them are these digital natives. They take to technology. Um, but they also have insecurities. They want to learn, they want to share. Yeah, it's uh, two ways. It's, it's two ways. So, so how do we build this culture um, of creating these safe spaces where people can speak freely? Um, I, I, I have a great hope that this whole discussion where we are um, you know, taking away the stigma from mental health is, is one positive step towards that, you know, building these cultures of mentorship and coaching. Um, because it's hugely valuable and you know you, you, you're saying you, as you reflect now you can see the value yeah it was something that I completely I didn't value but there's a certain a lot certainly a lot of value because you've already seen many things like that's it but the problem is that when you and I see it for example when I teach like to younger like law students or whatever sometimes I feel that what I'm telling them is not really getting across mm. and they 
they must they must live through it yes. to fully understand absolutely. it absolutely and and i think also you know hindsight gives you 2020 vision uh, you know as as i look back on my career and i'm sure you do the same you can also start to identify the people who were mentors but maybe we didn't actively see them as that at the time yeah. uh, but you know they guided us and there's some lessons from specific individuals that you still fall back on uh, and i think that's the value of of a mentor just you know sometimes not to you know just listen to you complain but actually to shape you and to to guide you and i and i was in a women's empowerment session this week in fact um and someone said towards the end that you know what they want from a mentor um is someone who will listen to them and teach them but not dictate to them <laughs> and i think that that's important because it's not a case of that's my way and you must do it that way or that's how we did it uh, in the past um, i think as mentors you also have to be open to learning yeah yeah i think that that sometimes is lost and also whenever you hear someone saying we do it because that's that's, that's the way we did it and probably is wrong but <laughs> yeah. but but yeah i mean sometimes i think that it should be to waste it and that sometimes is lost yeah uh, and regarding working from home uh, it's something that i think that the idea behind it is it's about to find the balance between the employer to be either the same or or more productive yeah. but also to kind of facilitate the the life and the life work balance of yeah. employees is not just working from home for the sake of working from home but i've seen mixed results i think that we saw there studies that can show that you are more productive there's also studies that show that you're not and i i was thinking that the in silicon valley where they're like leading some of these uh pretty much everything that regards to the future they are not really so keen on working from home or at least not fully not like they fully. want like a, a yeah. balance yeah i i i i can't see the idea of 100% remote working becoming the norm i think uh, for me personally now that we've started coming back to the office two days a week i like the interaction of my colleagues uh, but i i also know that you know as a woman there has been this unfair burden on women who've worked from home because they've had the responsibilities of childcare they've had the responsibilities of housework and the responsibilities of work all in that 8 hours sometimes um there's also been this overworking issue uh, you know because you're in front of your your computer people just think they can add meetings into your calendar meetings go on till you know all hours in the office most evenings you pack up around 5 or 6 suddenly now you're doing meetings at 7 or 8 pm um and it it's just assumed that you can because well you're there right yeah. um, so so how do we bring that balance in um, i think the the big issue for me around remote working has been more fundamental than than the productivity issue and it's the trust issue yeah that's actually something i don't understand maybe because I'm like there's like some of our like older managers they were they're not familiar with this uh, environment and I don't know if they automatically assume because of human nature that they you you you're off shopping yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how how do you solve that trust issue and and I think that's a that's a management and leadership issue I think you know if if your team knows if if you're in a management or leadership position and your team knows that you trust them they'll give you more than you ask for And and that's a that's a fundamental leadership principle, right? Um 
but I, I think this issue of micromanaging is something that we need to get out of our uh, organizational uh, operating models uh, because you know this clock watching and micromanagement have never been good for productivity. How many people have we worked with over the years who come to work on time, who sit there till five, but probably did two things in the day and spent the rest of the time having coffee or talking to colleagues or on a smoke break or full lunch break. And, and yet at home, I, I know my husband, for example, he far prefers to work from home because he feels he's productive from, you know, sometimes from eight to six, he's at his laptop and he's in IT. So, you know, he's working on his laptop and his screen. Uh, and he says when he goes to the office, he doesn't have that same level of, of productivity because there's disturbances, etc. So I do think there's, there's pros and cons. On the other hand, he works in a team. And I don't know how you can constantly work remotely from your team. I think yeah. it's, you know, sometimes you do need to be with your team. What I have seen that the remote work has done has opened up a whole new team. <laughs> you know, we, we're able to engage with people all over the world. <laughs> and engage meaningfully, where previously we would have needed to go to a conference <laughs> to meet these individuals. We've been able to build relationships virtually. Um, so, so I think there, there are opportunities, there are challenges. Again, it comes down, I think, to how individuals are empowered. <laughs> um, I think it's the, the, the trust issue. How do you inculcate trust in your team? And trust is earned, yeah. right? So where do you, where do you draw the that line in terms of creating it. It's been very interesting to see many young people want to return to the office. Yeah, uh, yeah actually I, I expected it the... The, the, uh, the yeah, opposite. Yeah. But I think that's where you learn. That's how you build that experiential uh, knowledge and uh, you, know, you build relationships, um, especially your initial working relationships um, by being um, in person. So it's going to be interesting how the the whole relationship dynamic uh, is impacted on through the shift. Um, I think I think it will be largely hybrid, um, so a combination of uh, virtual and in the office. Uh, but I, I can see that it's it's I, I can't see it going back to the office full time. It, it's going to be a hard sell for employers to force that on individuals, um, and that's a lot of where what's prompting this whole great resignation. Uh, you know, employers being uh, hard and fast about people coming back 100%. Uh, I think the opportunity to bring that balance in, to build in other tasks, to, you know, be able at lunchtime, if you don't want to eat, you can go for a walk and get some fresh air. And we mustn't underestimate the value of what that means to our individual well-being. And regarding the gig economy, like, I mean, I was raised in the generation where you thought that you would stay with your employer the whole life, then you'll retire, you'll get a gold Rolex, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you go... And you have your pension. <laughs> yeah. And like, how, how is it going to work for those people who do not have a yeah. stable income yeah. and they cannot afford to save up for their retirement? I mean, maybe they can live day to day, but, and yeah. they can live comfortably, but saving up for their future... And I think, I think that's something that as individuals in trade, as individuals in business, uh, we're sitting in the offices of the International Organization of Employers. That is something that we, we desperately need to address because it is an area where people can be exploited. And I think this idea of zero hour contracts is something that needs to be reviewed. Um, I think the need for 
a social safety net is important. Um, if you read the ILO's declaration on the, the Centenary Declaration um, in 2019, uh, you know, it speaks to creating these um, conditions of decent work. <laughs> you know, it's a future of work that's human-centered. So I think we need, we need to make sure we put people first. <laughs> Um, so, you know, th those are critical needs because all of these gig workers who cannot afford to retire at some point, we as taxpayers will still need to support them. Yeah. Um, yes, it's turning the blind eye to something that is still going to be there. It's still going to be there, right? So why don't we try and fix it now and build in structures and build in... Uh, you know, ring-fenced um, contributions and, you know, some kind of support system for these individuals because they're working and they're working really, really hard. Um, it's, it's not that they're asking for welfare. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, as, as, as governments, there's a lot of work that has to be done. I think as businesses, there's, there's also a need for some self-reflection. Uh, you know, what does it, what does it mean for me, amassing massive profits, but knowing that the workforce is being potentially exploited. Yes, and that's something that uh, the disproportion accumulation of wealth oh. in a few is something I think is like even more evident now than it was before. Yeah, well, you know, I, I come from the country that has the highest levels of inequality in, in the world. And, you know, for years I couldn't, I couldn't actually understand how is that possible? when there's an emerging middle class and, you know, people should be moving out of poverty. Uh, but you, you can see, you know, when, when a CEO is earning 400 times what the lowest worker is earning, how do you explain that? You don't even, they don't even live in the same reality. The no. reality of one is it's like living in Mars and another. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's, we saw, again, another thing COVID has done is widened that divide. Yeah. You know, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer um, through COVID. And I know with the SDGs, they've said that, you know, a lot of the gains over the last 10, 10 years have almost been wiped out in some respects. So how do we, how do we put in place um, strategies for the recovery that will also address that element of society that is now even more marginalized? Well, you talked a lot, uh, about many challenges that we have the whole world as, as a whole, but uh, overall, how, how do you feel about what we're doing like through the policy changes, through your work, mm -hmm. through the work of other organizations? Do you feel optimistic about it? Or? Yeah. I'm optimistic. I, I think I wouldn't <laughs> be here if I wasn't optimistic. I think we, we all have an individual obligation to be part of a movement for change, for positive change. Um, I think we're, we're taking along companies, we're taking along partners like the ILO, the IOE, the OECD, uh, working with the Commonwealth, the African Union. Or, you know, there, there's, a, there's a general willingness to improve. I think we all know the challenges. We've documented them extensively. Uh, but it, it's also time that we, we move beyond just the policy discussion and we get to work on the implementation. Um, I think often the implementation gap, but the policy implementation gap is so big. <laughs> because in principle, the policy is sound, but the, the implementation needs so much more work. And I think that's where we need the collective. Um, I, I don't think money is the issue. Um, I think there's enough money everywhere we look that we can address many of these challenges. Um, I think it's, it's the political will that we need. 
And as the GAN, we're seeing it at least on the skills side. Uh, we see it in the public sector leadership. We see it in the private sector leadership. Um, I think what we what we do need is this massive push. Uh, we we also need as individuals to come on board and push for this change, um, and and be part of the solution. I, I think that's the only way we're going to get uh, to where we need to be um, as the world. <laughs> Well, Nasreen, it has been like a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rodolfo. It's been so lovely to share. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you?